Hello, faith community, and welcome to Reading Through the New Testament in a Year. It's such a joy to be able to join with you in reading through Scripture. I've been blessed by gathering together with my family weekly and doing these readings together. I hope that you're blessed as well, and I hope that these devotionals are an encouragement to you. We find ourselves today in the book of Philippians. Now, Philippians is a prison epistle. Paul is in prison when he writes it. And so it's surprising that the tone of Philippians is often focused on Paul's joy, on his rejoicing. You see, Paul had an indomitable joy. He had joy that could not be put down. And the reason was because of Christ's work. Paul was absolutely confident that what Christ was doing could not be thwarted, no matter his circumstances or the circumstances for the church in Philippi. And it comes across over and over and over again in Paul's letter. What you see is this extreme spiritual optimism. I hope as you read it, it catches on for you, that you have this extreme spiritual optimism resulting in indomitable joy. Let's begin in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1. Paul says this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for you, for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, I want you to listen to Paul's confidence here. He, he says, I am confident I'm sure of this in verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you hear that? Do you communicate that in the people to the people you talk to, that you're sure that God is going to finish what he started? This, this is Paul's model for us of how we should be interacting with our fellow believers. We shouldn't be always doubting, always questioning, always wondering. Now, there, there's legitimate concerns. If people are living a life of rebellion to Christ and they're not conforming themselves to the word, well, then we should warn them. But for those who are struggling through and they're striving after Jesus, we should have a confidence. We should be sure that God is going to finish what he started in them. And understand, Paul's confidence here, it's not in the people themselves. He's not confident because people are so good. He's confident because God is. He's confident because God is the one who's going to do the work, because Jesus is the one who's going to build his church. It's not by might or by strength. It's by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's confident because what Christ is doing can't be stopped by circumstance. Now, I want you to listen to verse 8. Paul says this, For God is my witness, how I deeply miss all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. Did you hear what Paul said about how he missed them? How does he miss them? He says, I miss you with the affections of Christ Jesus. What Paul is letting them know is the love that he has for them comes from Jesus. Do you know that we have that love? Every single one of us. Romans 5, 5 says the love of God is shed abroad in our heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We have affection for our fellow believers. Don't believe the lie that you don't love your fellow believer. Your heart is filled up with affection for them, just like Paul's for the church at Philippi. Now he goes on, he says in verse 9, I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. 
You know, I challenged you as we were reading through Ephesians to read through those prayers, to think about those prayers, and to pray those prayers. The best way to learn to pray is to pray like scripture writers pray, because they're inspired by the Holy Spirit as they're writing these prayers. So when we pray the words of scripture, that's powerful. So here's one you can pray right here, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And I want you to notice that there's three things that Paul's praying for the church at Philippi. First thing, he's praying that their love, w- that their, their love would grow in knowledge that their love would grow in knowledge. What does that mean? It means he doesn't want them just to be able to say, yes, I love Jesus. He wants them to be able to say, why? He doesn't want them just to be able to say, yeah, I love other people. He wants them to be able to understand why. He wants them to have a knowledge, an understanding, a comprehension of the love that they have. Remember the problem for the Jews was that they had zeal without knowledge. The same is true if we have love without knowledge. So Paul's prayer is their love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. You see, love understands why it's loving. And Paul wants them to grow in that knowledge of love. The second thing he prays is that they would approve the things that are good, that they would approve the things that are good. It's so important for us to be growing in our discernment and the ability to distinguish what's good and what's evil. We need to have our, Hebrew says, we need to have our senses exercised to discern good from evil. You need to be growing in your discernment. Paul prays that for the church of Philippi. Pray that for yourself. Pray that for the people you love. Next, the third request he makes is that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Understand this. Jesus wants to fill you up with the fruit of righteousness. He wants to change your life from the inside out. He doesn't save you so you can live in sin. He saves you so you can be transformed more and more into his image. The child of God does the works of God by the Spirit of God. It's so important to understand that Jesus is working in you. Now, look at the next part of this passage. Paul talks about his chains. And you might think that his attitude towards being chained, towards being imprisoned, is, please, I want to escape. This is terrible. But remember what I said? He has indomitable joy. He's spiritually optimistic. So listen to what he says. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Okay, do you hear what Paul's saying? He's saying, because I'm in prison, the gospel's going out even more. I I want you to think about the attitude he's having. Paul loves to preach. He loves to travel around. He's constantly on the move, proclaiming, 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 proclaiming. And now he has to stay in one place. And he can't go out, and he can only talk to people who come to him. Now, it'd be really easy for an evangelist in that situation to get depressed to get frustrated, thinking, I have this gift, I have this responsibility, and here I am locked up, I can't do it. And Paul says, no, this is good. Why? Because now the gospel's going out even more. The gospel cannot be chained. And so there's a couple of reasons that the gospel's being more effective. One is because now these people who Paul might not have had access to otherwise are hearing the gospel. He's preaching to his 
prison guards. And he says the entire imperial guard has come to know the gospel. Paul has a captive audience. And why is that? It's because the way in which he's chained. He's always next to a Roman guard, which means he always has somebody who has to listen to what he says. They don't have a choice. What an amazing opportunity. Instead of bemoaning the fact that he's bound, he celebrates the reality that he has somebody who sh to share the gospel with, and they can't leave. And he doesn't stop there. He says, not only that, but brothers and sisters across the world have become bold to share the gospel because of my example. They realize what's important. You see, sometimes we stand up for the truth and we get opposed because of that. But when we do that, the people who surround us are emboldened to stand as well. True believers will always be emboldened by the tribulation that their brothers and sisters face. And Paul is the poster child for that reality. He shows us when you stand up for truth and you're opposed and you're in prison, you are replaced by a myriad of other believers who are emboldened by your faith, encouraged by your example. Now, what's interesting is Paul, he's, he's not just sort of painting everything with a silver lining here. It's not all daisies and roses. He says, now, some of these people, they're not preaching the gospel for the right motives. Listen to what he says here in verse 15. To be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. So Paul says there's two motivations for preaching the gospel. One is love. I love the Lord. I love my fellow believers, and I love the lost. That's the motivation for proclaiming the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because we love with Christ's love. But there's other people who have the wrong motive. It's out of selfish ambition. And these are people who are trying to somehow profit through the gospel, trying to get people to, to join their, their, their church, to follow them, to give them money for proclaiming the gospel to them. These are selfish motives. But what does Paul say? He says this, What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. And yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Do you hear it? Indomitable joy. Spiritual optimism. Paul says, you know what? These people have the wrong motivation. They might not even be saved. I still rejoice because they're saying the words and God can take those words. He can take words from a donkey. He can take words from a Balaam and he can use those words to do marvelous things. The gospel can't be chained. And that's what Paul understands. And so he can rejoice in this situation where even people are proclaiming the gospel for the wrong motives. Paul still finds a reason to rejoice. This is the example. This is the model for the heart of every single believer to be spiritually optimistic at all times, no matter what our circumstance. Now, now it's so, so easy to think about how Paul could fall into despair right here. He's in prison. He can't go out. There's these charlatans who are proclaiming the gospel. He could really focus on the negative. That's not what he does. Why? Spiritual optimism. We're all called to it. What does he say then? He says he knows this will lead to his salvation through their prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now, 
What's Paul talking about here when he says it's going to result in his salvation? He's not talking about salvation in salvation from sins. The word for salvation also just means to be set free, to be set free from chains. Paul's confident this isn't the end of his story. He's going to be let out of prison, and that's what he's talking about right here. Now, what does the proclamation have to do with Paul being set free? Why, why is he confident that because the gospel is being proclaimed, he'll be set free? Well, a society transformed by the gospel is a free society. You see, Paul understands what society always needs is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as they're transformed by it, they're going to stop doing things like this. It's easy in our world today to sort of focus on all the negative and think how everything's falling apart and think, man, I wish everybody would just have the right politics, have the right focus. The thing that people need is Jesus Christ. The only transformation that we should be praying for is for transformed hearts. And we should be so confident that it's the only thing that'll change the world that we see as the gospel goes out, as revival begins, that's going to result in people who are chained up being set free because society will be transformed. Paul is confident. We should be confident as well. He, he goes on. And he says this, my eager expectation, this is verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want you to think about this. What is Paul talking about here? He says he is confident. He has this eager expectation that he'll not be ashamed. Why does he have an eager expectation that he will not be ashamed? The reason he has this confidence is because of where he finds his identity. He finds his identity in Christ, and in Christ he is secure. So no matter what happens to him, no matter what people say about him, no matter how people treat him, he's secure. He's not going to be ashamed. He's not going to be embarrassed. He's not going to worry about the world, and he's not going to fear man. Why? Because his identity is secure in Christ. What keeps us from shame is a secure identity in Christ Jesus. For me to live is Christ. What is he saying? He's saying Christ is life. That's all. That's why I live. And he says to die is gain. Well, now, what, what does that mean? Does that mean that Paul's saying he wants to die? Does it mean his time here is over? Well, he's actually torn. He says in verse 23, I am torn between the two. I long to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Since I am persuaded of this, I know that I will remain and continue with all of you for your progress in joy in the faith, so that because of my coming to you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus may abound. So what does Paul say? He says, I'm torn. I would love to die and <laughs> to go and be with my Savior forever. That's gain. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's going to be so much better than anything I can experience here. And understand, he's rejoicing here. He's not chained here. He's free, even though he's imprisoned. And he has this indomitable joy. But at the same time, what he's going to have in heaven is so much better. It's gain. But what does he say? He says, I'm going to stay here. 
I'm confident I'm going to stay here. Why? Well, for one, the church at Philippi is praying for him to be set free, and he's confident God is going to answer their prayers. Also, he knows his story isn't over yet. He knows God still has work for him, and he's going to leave him here until he has finished the race. And what's interesting, in 2 Timothy, when he writes his last epistle, he says, I finished the race. I'm there now. I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. In Philippians, he's not there yet. He's not ready to depart yet, but he's eager to depart. Now, he says, in the end of the passage here, verse 27, he says, Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit and one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. I want you to think about this. When we have indomitable joy, when we have spiritual optimism, it dominates our opponents. They can't do anything. They can't do anything to get us down. They can't do anything to distract us from the mission because we will not be deterred by their accusations, by the things that they say should shame us. We're not going to get distracted by the world who loves to condemn us. Why? Because we can see through the eyes of the Spirit what Jesus Christ is doing, and it cannot be stopped. We're not citizens of this earth. We're citizens of heaven, and that's why we have indomitable Joy. He says this at the end of the passage, It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. I want you to understand this. Paul sets an example, and we're going to follow that example, which includes suffering. We're going to suffer too. And when we suffer, we need to have indomitable joy. We need to have spiritual optimism. And that begins by viewing suffering how Paul did. Look what he says right here. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe, but to suffer. View suffering, trials, hardship, persecution as a privilege. Why? Spiritual optimism. That's what the believer is called to. See it. Show it. Live it out. Demonstrate to the world that what you have, they can't take. This is how we testify to the reality of the gospel. It's how the church grows. It's how society is transformed. And it's how we, as the hands and feet of Jesus Christ, are going to change the world. Thank you so much for listening to me today. 